David Weiss for the Daily Worker Placement, and you're listening to The Game Changers. Episode 8, Resistance is Not Futile, Part 2. Before we start back in, I want to share a historical morsel I came across last week that I definitely would have inserted into my outline of the history of party games from Part 1, if I'd known about it before. I'd already mentioned that charades were becoming popular in Victorian England with important mentions in contemporary novels of the day. What I found out last week was that we can trace charades' popularity in England to one specific source, which would both codify and legitimize charades for the ascendant Victorian middle and upper classes. In 1850, two brothers, Augustus and Henry Mayhew, collaborated on a book. Henry was already well-known as the co-founder and co-editor of the humor magazine Punch, which was well on its way to becoming a major British literary and sometimes political institution that lasted for 150 years. Their book was called Acting Charades or Deeds Not Words, A Christmas Game, whose title is a giveaway that the brothers Mayhew were cashing in on the new fad of celebrating Christmas. This was being popularized by Queen Victoria and especially her prince consort, Albert, who imported many traditions from his birthplace of Saxe-Coburg in northern Germany, including family game time, which we know from episode 3 was already embedded in German culture. It's really interesting to me to see how the establishment of charades as the dominant party game in Western world arose from an intersection of forces, the influence of the British royal family, the invention of modern Christmas celebration, the growth of the industrial revolutionary bourgeoisie, and the increasing importance of mass media such as magazines. Okay. Let's return to where we left off at the end of part one, which was the party game boom of the late 20th century. Starting in 1981 with Trivial Pursuit, by the end of the millennium there were about a dozen games dominating the party game market which are still strong sellers today, at least according to the anecdotal data I collected over the past year working at my friendly local game store, or FLGS. Here again, I need to amend myself. I hinted in Part 1's cliffhanger ending that this episode's Game Changer wasn't influenced by any of those big games from the 80s, but instead by an obscure game from a quirky publisher. Since then, I've come to the conclusion that this week's Game Changer spawned not from one, but two parent games from two different quirky publishers, both released in 1981. Double the quirkiness, double the fun. So, let's start with the first, a game called Killer, from Steve Jackson Games. For some reason, maybe numerological, the name Steve Jackson seems intertwined with Tabletop because there are not one, not two, but three designers going with that name. There's the British Steve Jackson, who co-founded Games Workshop in 1975 and made his name with role-playing games and a beloved line of fighting fantasy game books, which took the choose-your-own-adventure genre and added a layer of Dungeons & Dragons-type role-playing, essentially allowing players to play D&D solitaire. Several of those game books have now been ported to digital and are still popular and stand up over 30 years later. 
then there's the Stephen with a PH C Jackson, Stephen C. Jackson, who is American, a contributor to GMT's in-house C3I magazine for the past 20 years, and who specializes in tactical level war games. And then there's Steve Jackson of Steve Jackson Games, or SJG. Jackson was born in 1954 in Tulsa, Oklahoma, but his father, an accountant for Exxon Oil, moved the family to Houston, Texas when he was 12, and he's spent most of the rest of his life in Austin. At Rice University, also in Houston, he majored in biology and political science and became the editor of the school paper and was introduced to what he called adventure games. After graduating in 1974, Jackson went straight into law school, but began to spend more and more time on his hobby, sometimes literally making notes during class on a game he was designing, a game set in a distant future where huge robot tanks prowled the countryside. He called the game Ogre, and he sold the design to an Austin company called Metagaming. Ogre became a big seller, and in 1977, Jackson dropped out of law school to become a full-time freelance designer with an exclusive contract with Metagaming. One of the games he produced for them was a tactical system of person-to-person -person combat called Melee, which, along with its spell-weaving sequel, Wizard, became the basis for the combat system of a little game called Dungeons & Dragons. That is a pathway we could spend episodes exploring, but reluctantly we have to leave it behind to move on. Still, I hope you are getting a sense of just how influential this Steve Jackson has been as a designer. By 1980, Jackson went into business for himself, and from the start showed both a head for business and a willingness to design and publish games with wacky or controversial topics. By necessity, his games had to be small and cheaply produced, and he embraced that. One of his first games was a micro-war game about the final German offensive on the Western Front in December of 1944. He titled it One Page Bulge, because the rules on the map literally took up both sides of a single letter-sized sheet of paper, and it covered what has come to be called the Battle of the Bulge. And yet, despite the small size of the game, he managed to inject flavor and tension into it. I know, because I have a copy, and it's a good game. Another in the first wave of SJG designs was called Raid on Iran, in which, possibly drawing on his interest in political science, he asked the question, what if President Jimmy Carter had in the end, ordered a commando raid in 1980 on the embassy compound where 52 American diplomats and citizens were being held hostage by insurgent forces of the Ayatollah Khomeini. It was a politically charged theme even then, but Jackson went ahead with it. Jackson's interest in biology, on the other hand, led down a different path to wacky games like Globo, where weird, modular, multi-armed things battled it out on a hex grid, or the awful green things from outer space, which took all the science fiction tropes of aliens have invaded our ship and whipped them together in a cartoony frenzy. Awful Green Things was one of the first games I ever read about in Games Magazine in the spring of 1980, and I ran out to get it, and I still have that copy, and I would never part with it. 
I've only just begun to plumb the depths of Jackson's early catalog. Other big sellers, which still have fans today, include Car Wars, Illuminati, and a system called GURPS, Generic Universal Role-Playing System, possibly the first conscious attempt to design a set of rules that could be used by a gaming group to create a role-playing game set in any universe, fictional or non-fictional. And yet, ironically, the direct ancestor of this week's Game Changer that Jackson released in 1981 wasn't even designed by him. The game was called Killer. Killer actually billed itself as a, quote, live role-playing game, unquote, because putting the word role-playing on the package was bound to make it more popular at the time. In its basic form, Killer was kind of a free-for-all, with every participant taking the roles of both assassin and target. At the start of the game, everyone's name gets thrown into a hat and everyone picks their initial target randomly. You can't pick yourself. If you manage to assassinate your target, you take over their assignment, until in the end, you end up with two people each out to get the other for the final victory. I remember my school running a school-wide version of Killer one year in the early 80s. I forget which grade I was in, but I remember I didn't last long. The second parent to our little game changer was called Hoax published by Eon Games, who is best known for being the publisher of the first edition of Cosmic Encounter, which continues to thrive today, being published by Fantasy Flight Games. Hoax was a smaller, less flashy game than Cosmic Encounter, but it improved on the killer formula in two ways. First of all, there were more than just two possible roles, assassin and target. In Hoax, there were six possible character roles, king, judge, vicar or priest, wizard, thief, and peasant. The twist was that whatever role you were assigned randomly at the beginning of the game, you could pretend to be any role you wanted and use the powers of that pretended role right up until you were challenged. If a majority of the other players thought you were usurping someone else's role and powers, you either had to admit cheating and give up that power, but continue playing, or flip over your roll card to show that you were using your powers honestly, in which case you instantly won. And that was the second improvement, an instant win condition. With Killer, games could drag on and on, particularly toward the end when there were just two or three players left. Anyone who has ever played a Battle Royale game like Fortnite can see the parallel here. Hoax was a constant roller coaster right up until the end, with everyone involved at all times. 2012's Coup by Ricky Tata streamlined and distilled Hoax's role bluffery into a very popular and successful game for two to six players, though it's really best with four or five. Despite their appeal, Hoax and Killer remained relatively marginal cult favorites. Why, I don't exactly know. Steve Jackson Games definitely knew how to market a game and turn it into a big seller. Their 2001 game Munchkin was nothing much to write home about design-wise, and yet its wacky take on dungeon delving has spun off into dozens of expansions. And Eon's Cosmic Encounter was and is very popular going through several editions. Somehow that ineffable X-factor was still missing. 
The game that added that crucial missing factor was invented in a country that has long had a historical association with paranoia, secrecy, and nefarious plots. I'm talking, of course, about Russia. Or rather, since it was 1986 and Mikhail Gorbachev had just ascended to the leadership of the Communist Party and was yet to introduce the series of reforms we know as Glasnost and Perestroika, which would herald its disintegration, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, or USSR. Dmitry Davidov was at Moscow University studying psychology. He was a pretty A-type guy, Dmitry. He was cramming a two-year degree into one year, teaching an advanced high school psychology class, and working on his thesis all at the same time. His paper was on time as a human psychological construct, inspired by the work of famed Russian psychologist Lev Vygotsky. The question he was looking at in particular was, how do humans decide how to spend their time? As an exercise with his high school class, he sent two students out into the hall, instructing them to decide on a topic the rest of the class should discuss. Then they'd come back in and the class would have to figure out what that topic was. At some point, Davidoff had a, a eureka moment. Instead of trying to figure out what the agreement was, it would be much more interesting for the class to figure out who was in agreement. So he started working on a game which, whether he knew it or not, was descended from an old Victorian parlor game called Wink, or Wink Murder, and has also been known as Cops and Robbers, or Candyman. Wink can be played with as few as four people, but is really meant to be played by a large group. Through some mechanism, generally through dealt cards or a tap on the shoulder from a moderator, one or more of the players is assigned the role of murder randomly and secretly. The twist is that only she knows she's the murderer. All everyone else knows is that they are not. Once everyone opens their eyes, the murderer tries to make eye contact with other people and kill them by winking at them. If someone else catches the murderer in the act, they can make an accusation. Otherwise, the victim is dead and out of the round. The murderer's aim is to kill everyone before being caught. Everyone else's goal is to catch the killer. In part one, I put all party games into six categories. Trivia, wordplay, divination, gambling, mystery, and challenge. Wink could be said to belong to the mystery category. Every game is a mystery to be solved, after all. But I argue that Wink sets the template for a whole new category, that of social deduction games. That term started popping up on Reddit only in the fall of 2008. Before then, the term hidden role was generally the one used. Social deduction games are an improvement on mystery games for one main reason. They are infinitely replayable. Regular mystery games, starting with Parker Brothers' Jury Box from the 30s and all the way up to today's Host a Murder or Escape Rooms in a Box, are very enjoyable, but one-time only experiences. Once they're solved, they can never be played again by that group. They're also very labor-intensive to create. Whereas every game of Wink, on the other hand, presents a new mystery for people to figure out, an endless fountain to draw from. This was the germ of the idea of what became Mafia, the first true social deduction game. 
Using a regular deck of playing cards, Davidoff would shuffle and deal out cards to his students. Some became killers, others regular folk. Davidoff's two main innovations were as follows. One, there was a special pre-game phase where everyone closed their eyes, and then all the killers opened their eyes briefly so they and they alone knew who all the other killers were. And two, the game alternated between night and day phases. At night, everyone once again closed their eyes, and then on a signal, each killer could open their eyes and silently assassinate one innocent victim. During the day, everyone opened their eyes, the survivors argued over who the killers could be, and then voted on one person to eliminate. The Mafia side won if they killed off all the citizens. The citizens won if they eliminated the Mafia. Davidov's students loved the game, and soon it spread organically through the Soviet university system from campus to campus. From there, it leapfrogged out of the Soviet Union, first to the Baltics, where it became a very successful TV show in Latvia, and then the rest of Europe and the United States via Princeton University in 1998. At this point, the plot gets a little murky. There's a fellow named Andrew Plotkin, who also goes by the name of Zarf, who claims he's the one who had the idea to change the theme of mafia to one about werewolves terrorizing a village. He maintains a text-only website, charming and very 1995 Netscapey, full of information and links about the early versions of Werewolf, but I can't find any corroborating evidence that he was the one who made the switch. Whether it was Zarf or someone else, this re-theming did improve the game. Partly because it freed people to tinker with other kinds of roles for what were now being called the villagers. For instance, the seer got to ascertain the status of a chosen player each night from the moderator. Or there were two lovers who had their destinies linked, so if one died, so did the other instantly. But if they were the last survivors, they won, even if one was a werewolf. And so on. In 2001, another small quirky publisher, Looney Labs, made a version of Werewolf that it sent out as a holiday gift to all its regular customers. I believe this was the first commercially available version, and it truly opened the floodgates. But the version most people know is the Bezier Games Ultimate Werewolf Edition, designed, by which I really mean expanded upon, by Ted Alsbach and originally released in 2007. It was Osbach who truly capitalized on the potential of this format, adding dozens of roles for both werewolves and villagers that could be swapped in and out, letting players tailor the mystery experience to their tastes. He also recast the game entirely, using aliens, superheroes, and supervillains, with a canny understanding that people would be happy to buy old wine in new bottles if the theme and price were right. Werewolf and all its spin-offs spawned a subculture all its own within Tabletop, spurred on by late-night sessions at conventions, which would go on until all hours of the morning. Groups sprang up whose sole purpose was to play Werewolf, which added a whole new layer of meta to the game. Repeated playings with the same group, although theoretically independent from each other in game terms, led to players having histories with each other that transcended the individual sessions. This led to increasingly rich, complex, and in some cases, fraught psychological dealings. But 
For all its popularity, there was one fly in the wear ointment, and that was player elimination. This was not a problem in smaller groups, but being eliminated in the early rounds of a 15-player game led to a ton of downtime while you waited for the next game to start. In some groups, players could keep participating after being killed, but the results of that were mixed, as the in-game stakes for dead players were different than those left alive, which threw the dynamics of the game off. Enter Don Eskridge. Like many young Americans, he wanted to go abroad to experience life, so he traveled to Korea to spend a few years teaching English and take acting jobs in Korean movies and TV shows. A big werewolf fan, he spent a lot of spare time thinking about how to improve it. In the summer of 2009, he was sitting at the back of a lecture hall while his students were attending a leadership course when he had his aha moment. Instead of being about murdering people, what about a game that was about the opposite? A game that was about trusting people and figuring out who you could trust. From there, a Star Wars-ish scenario began to play itself out in his mind. A tiny group of rebels trying to take down a galactic empire, but infiltrated by government spies trying to sabotage their missions. The rebels have just enough dilithium crystals or whatever for five more attempts. They have identified three key targets which, if destroyed, would bring down the Empire. Each of those missions requires an away team, and since the rebels are an autonomous collective, although away team members are chosen by the rotating position of mission leader, the confirmation of the away team's members is subject to a majority vote by the group. Once on the mission, each away team member secretly votes on the mission's success. True rebels can never sabotage a mission, but government spies can choose, if they want, to make it fail. But since the votes are shuffled together before revealing the result, everyone knows what happened, success or failure, but blame can't be pinned on specific players, at least not at first. The rebels win if three missions succeed, the traitors win if three missions fail, or they manage to poison the dialogue so much that no one can even agree on who should go on an away team mission. Eskridge decided to call the game The Resistance, and it is our next game changer. The Resistance was a brilliant mixture of the hidden role and social deduction mechanics and became a huge hit first as a free print-and-play game on BoardGameGeek, and then as a commercially published game, where it spawned several additional modules and expansions, as well as a rethemed version called The Resistance Avalon, which arguably proved even more popular, possibly because of its romanticized Arthurian setting, as well as one additional rule, the Merlin Rule, which allowed the bad guys in this case, the knights loyal to the traitorous Modred, to pull off a last-minute victory even if the loyal knights of the round table successfully completed three quests. This rule corrected the slight imbalance the game had toward the good guys, as well as adding an extra werewolfian layer of strategy. Now, while it's true that the popular board game version of the rebooted Battlestar Galactica predates the Resistance by about a year, and therefore introduced the ideas of secret voting and no player elimination first, I argue that 
although it's an excellent game, it's not a game changer. First, because it was a much more complex game that took much longer to play, and second, because although you didn't need to be a fan of the series to play or enjoy it, it really did help, which also limited its appeal. The Resistance was light, portable, much easier to teach, and had its own self-contained story. In other words, the perfect party game, and therefore became one of the most requested and played games at the new board game cafes that were springing up around the world, which we talked about in part one expanding Tabletop's popularity and influence even further than ever. But remember, there was a second party game that was right up there with the resistance in terms of popularity. It was a hybrid. Some might call it a mongrel junk dog. And we'll delve into it in Episode 9. That was Part 2 of Episode 8 of The Game Changers. I'm David Weiss for The Daily Worker Placement, Thanks for listening, see you next time, and don't flip that table.